As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel. Joined by Bruce Feldman, who is in an airport uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, we are coming to you later than usual this week, and we apologize for that combination of things. I mean, first we of all, most of all, we tried to wait out the Big Ten in a possible punishment against Michigan and or Jim Harbaugh. And it is Thursday evening, and that still hasn't happened in um we need to we think, it, we think it might be tomorrow morning, Friday morning is possible, but it's also we're in a little bit of the phrase of nobody knows anything right now. I think I, mean, I think there's a good chance it'll have happened by the time people listen to this. And so maybe some of this will be outdated, but we just, you know, as of this moment, we're sitting here wondering when, when if and when it's going to be. So what has happened, well, lots has happened in the Michigan story since we last had this podcast, but most recently on uh, Wednesday afternoon, evening, the Michigan sent its response to the Big Ten as the, after the Big Ten sent um, a notification to Michigan that they are basically, uh, if you on trial, if you will, for uh, the Connor Stallion situation. So Tom Mars, who full confession, full disclosure, we've both dealt with, talked to a lot, uh, but he's also Harbaugh's attorney. And he drafted this letter that was shared, uh, I believe, by Dan Wetzel. So basically, Bruce, the case that they're making, they're not trying to say uh, all this stuff about Connor Stallions is false. Um, you know, nobody's coming out and say, hey, we didn't do that. We didn't have any sort of in-person scouting. What they're saying is, A, uh, Tony Petiti you don't have the authority to do anything about this. There's nothing in the Big Ten bylaws that say you can apply that sportsmanship policy to a situation that's being investigated by the NCA. The sportsmanship policy is used for, you know, the stuff we usually talk about, officiating comments, um, fights during the game, et cetera. And then there's what I would call the... Um, the the what about what aboutism portion of it, which is focused heavily on the other story that has come out that there were schools in the Big Ten 
that were sharing Michigan's play signals amongst themselves. That's Michigan saying, are you sure you want to open that Pandora's box and punish us for something that other schools are doing something that's similar? I mean, there is a distinction between in-person scouting, which is against NCAA rules, and watching it on tape. But they're basically saying, doesn't that fall under sportsmanship policy? Shouldn't you maybe be looking into that? How convincing or unconvincing do you think Michigan's response is? I, I know. I'll be honest. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how to weed through wade, wade through some of this. I mean, there's one part of it um, where if Connor Stallion's associates were involved, Michigan cast doubt that any rule was violated because the NCAA in-person scouting policy is for a for a team's quote athletics personnel unquote and these if they were not people working for Michigan on Michigan's staff then does that invalidate it I don't know that I mean you know on on one hand I would see that and think well if you're still getting the information and it's from video no matter how how rudimentary it is does does that not uh, cross a line you know, but like any good attorney, they are raising question marks here about it. And we're in, you know, we talked about this the other day. We talked about this a lot, that this is, you know, unprecedented situation. And they're scrambling to try to do something. Um, and I don't know what they're going to do because, you know, if they suspend Jim Harbaugh indefinitely, then... It's like, okay, how quickly can Michigan get him back on the field? I mean, you know, we don't think anything's going to happen within 24 hours before they, at the earliest before they kick off on the road at Penn State. That's definitely a unique hurdle for a, for a team to have to navigate, whether your head coach is going to be there or not. You know, I, I don't think they have any answer to that right now. And so the whole thing is really, really complicated. Um, I think there's a lot of layers to this and there are more and more layers seemingly keep coming. The thing that I think, you know, has gotten a lot more, I would say traction, because I don't think that's the right way to say it, but I think a lot more discussion is just the possibilities of, did you know, like can we say we're beyond a reasonable doubt that Jim Harbaugh, is there a hundred percent proof, not just supposition that he had knowledge of what, Connor Stallions was doing and I don't I don't know like it just to me it seems like he would have to know on the other hand you know you could you could see it where he may not have known yeah yeah I mean I think first of all you said you know I'm not a lawyer reasonable doubt I mean we're not in the court of law yet uh this is a this is a letter to the Big Ten commissioner and there's no legal threshold of like what bar they have to prove. It's basically. But there will be. There will be. Yeah, there might, but point. the first step is, you know, you're sending this to Tony Petiti, basically an attempt to spook him out of doing this punishment. Um, and so it's basically just like, is it going to work or ha or is he determined to lay down the law here and not get distracted by these various talking points? All, none of which say, hey, we didn't break that rule. Uh, well, you said that they're trying to say the in-person, like using the. Yeah, there. I, yeah. I don't think it's as I don't think it's as as much as you just said it was because there are there are pieces of this right. where they they're are saying like that. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't think 
you know, that is, you know, in that case, that one particular, and there may be others that I, you know, when I didn't flag in my head when I looked at, you know, for what, uh, you know, what I saw this morning, but that was the one that, that seemed to jump out because we, you know, we don't know what you know, we, you know, we don't know that part of it. Right. And so how significant does, does the big 10 take that piece of it that they will jump to the front of the line on this in front of the NCAA and act. And I don't, I don't, I will find out, but again, like you said, um, you know, at some point this is the lawyers are involved. So once the lawyers are involved, that's where it's going. It's, you usually do not walk that any of that stuff back. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we are under the assumption that if they do try to suspend Harbaugh, they will be in a courtroom as quickly as possible trying to, get a restraining order um and who knows like who who could possibly predict how a judge is going to view all this we're all very much in the football prism i think the most compelling point though is if they because like you said as of now as far as we know we don't know everything that they may or may not have info on but as far as i know there's not yet any proof that harbaugh knew about this stuff and so if the big 10 punishes him they're basically invoking the NCAA rule that a head coach is responsible for the actions of his staff. Uh, and and Michigan is saying, but that's an NCAA rule. That's not a Big Ten rule. Like You guys are trying to enforce a different organization's rules in this situation. And, you know, if you're thinking ahead to going to a court, that to me is the most compelling thing they could say to a judge. Like, it's important. I know that, you know, I've read various analyses of these that, you know, it's important that uh, you know, they're, it's going to be important that they show that the Big Ten is not upholding, you know, that the Big Ten is not upholding the, or sorry, not applying rules that the membership agreed to. And yeah, we don't know of any rule the Big Ten has that would say a head coach is responsible for the, you know, staff member. I think you would agree that if they suspend him, they're basically doing that as a, we want to punish them, but we don't want the players to get caught in the crosshairs. And Stallions is already out of there. So we think the most impactful thing we can do is suspend the head coach. Right. I mean, and look, I, you know, I've said this to you for, I feel like a couple of weeks now that this was the one scenario that was on the table to me. I think you were the, one of the first people to write about how they should be banned you know, from the postseason, And I just like, I just really disagreed with that because you're punishing the players and you're really not giving them due process at all, at all in that pro in that. And I feel like that was to me, I feel like all that is way too knee jerk. I am not saying that Jim Harbaugh or that staff may not be very guilty, but you know, a lot of this is getting tried on Twitter, to be honest. And that's usually not a good thing. You know, so um, I, I don't envy Tony Petiti just like I didn't envy uh, Kevin Warren for, for his situation, you know, and um, early on in his tenure. I feel like this is a no-win situation for for him because... It's absolutely a no-win situation. He's got 13 schools. Well, I won't assume it's all 13 schools. He's got a bunch of schools in his conference saying... This is serious. 
this is, you know, I saw Brett Bielema talked after practice at Illinois and they tried to get him to, to take the, you know, they tried to get him to address the Michigan stuff. And at first he wasn't going there. And then finally he said something about how in-person scouting was, um, he made that point that many of these coaches done that that's basically a lot more uh, offensive. He didn't use that word, but I'm using paraphrasing offensive than any other kind of sign stealing. So you've got the schools telling him that. You've got Michigan basically saying, if you do this to us, watch out. There's You don't know what other schools' dirty laundry might come out. Something has already come out involving other schools in the league that might not be a rules violation, but is, you know, makes it seem like, oh, by the way, forgot the, the, to me, the best part of the letter is when they say that their scoring margin has gone up since Stallions was, uh, you know, put suspended and eventually resigned. So this never gave us an advantage. And I'm like, well, if it never gave you an advantage, why are you doing it? You, you, well, you I, I think that I think, uh, but I'm in that part. I think it is. Well, maybe they weren't doing it. Maybe Connor Stallions was doing it. Like you know, well, but we've thing, seen the screen caps. We've seen the video. He's standing right next to the. I get it. So you're, I think yeah. I think you're con, you may be conflating this though. You're under the impression that they that they definitely know that he was getting his intel through oh, other means and just yeah, like yeah. Again, the people I talked to two weeks ago who were around there were just thought Connor was really, really good. They described him um, as a savant. And look, I think when they looked at his background, oh, this guy graduated from the Naval Academy and had, had this military experience. You could see how a narrative in people's heads could be like, okay, he's, he probably understands body language and has a read on things and details that maybe the average aspiring football coach doesn't have that right and you know this is the thing i said to you yesterday the other day on the podcast which like i I was like you were you were of the mind of like why wouldn't he tell people that he did i'm like why wouldn't he tell people he do that if this is the thing that he is most known for and he takes great pride in that why would you want to tell somebody that maybe um you you um kick the ball out of the rough or teed up your ball in the rough as opposed to hit it out of three inches deep you know i mean i i could see why somebody would not would not volunteer that if that's their thing um on the story that nicole uh our back austin Meek and i did of related to going into the big 12 big 10 title game last year with several schools in the big 10 providing purdue with with michigan's own signals ahead of time um, one of the more interesting things, and this was not somebody who was definitely in the Michigan camp. This was somebody who feels like what they did was was wrong um, because he felt like they crossed the line. But this person, and I'm going to read this to you, I thought it was like kind of a you know an interesting um, interesting quote. So this person is a staffer who is involved in decoding uh, Michigan signals for a different Big Ten team said he doesn't buy that the way Stallions and Michigan allegedly gathered their intel actually gave them much of an advantage over the way other teams usually do it, or that they actually needed this. And then he kind of went into why he thinks they are the best, you know, it still comes back to blocking and tackling, why he thinks they're by far the best team in the league. And it was kind of interesting to hear the perspective, because again, this was a guy who was like, feels like they're just doing this now to divert attention from what's going on. But he was like, 
I've been doing this for a long time and I don't feel like what they would have gotten from on site is better than what we were getting already from our work. Yeah, he's saying that wouldn't necessarily be better. It's just that what they was within the rules and what what this guy's saying Correct. was within the rules and what Michigan is led to have done was not. So I mean at the end of the day, that's from a strictly from the NCA rules perspective, all of this stuff, I mean that letter, that response is almost like every comment, Mish, if you've been in the comment sections or Twitter come to life. It's all of these points that that are interesting. Like maybe we should have a debate about what the rules should and shouldn't be. But based on what the rules are now, um, none of the none of the other factors they're bringing in change it. You know, it'd be like saying like. No, unless unless the one about whether it's whether you're staffed or not, that I think that's the one that I saw. But yeah, I mean, and the question is, what is the punishment for it? Yeah, I mean, they're saying they're saying. Well, it didn't give us an advantage. Well, whether it gave you an advantage or not, we're talking about a violation of a rule. Right. Uh, whatever these other guys did doesn't change whether or not you broke the rule. Um, I don't know. I don't want to speculate on it too much because, like I said, by the time people listen to this, we may know what the punishment was. Um, but if if it is, in fact, a situation where they put out a press release and say Jim Harbaugh suspended for X number of games or indefinitely or whatnot, and Michigan then immediately takes the Big Ten to court. We've never seen anything like this because we're talking eve of a huge game against Penn State, two weeks from now, Ohio State, possibly Big Ten championship after that. Uh, I can't imagine these things are going to proceed through the courts very quickly. So it almost feels like an effort to just delay and delay and delay until after the season, at which point, if you want a championship, you want a championship, right? Like, they want to levy something down the road. That's not going to be nearly as painful as if they do something to prevent you from from prevent you right now from winning the championship. Um, they've got this window. They're nine and zero. They've got this window of opportunity of this great group of players. Who knows if Harbaugh will still be there after this year? It just it seems to me like and it and a all kind of an attempt to make sure that this opportunity is preserved. And we'll deal with whatever the NCAA comes up with two years from now. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All right. Um, anything There's else? Football this weekend, Bruce. There is football this weekend. Lots of good football. Lots of good football. Well, the and... Michigan Penn State game, I mean, that you're going to. Um, I'm surprised. I'm surprised it's only a four and a half point spread because Penn State obviously laid an egg against Ohio State and also. Um, every, every the, the general struggled against struggled against, against Indiana really the following year. Yeah, um, yeah. Did let me ask you this? We've talked about this before. How much do you think Jim Harbaugh being there and not being there is worth? Like, if I told you, like, give me two scores: the score with Jim Harbaugh or the score without him. If it's just that, I don't. I don't know that I that changes my score. What do you mean? If it's just brought that, up, he's not a he's not the play caller. So you don't think Jim Harbaugh is worth a point? Um, well, because why would, why would it be anything else? How, how, like, how say, would yeah. it be? like, what are you saying? Because he's just really good at knowing when to call. No, I'm not, part. I'm not, I'm not picking you picking what you said apart. No. I'm just saying like the way you say, if it's just that, I mean, like, what is it going to be? It's like, okay, we're going to suspend Jim Harbaugh and the offensive line. I mean, it's not going to work. Right. I, I think it's more a matter of, we have no idea how the guys in the locker room, the coaching staff is dealing with all this controversy. You know, sometimes 
it, you'll hear that it brings guys together and they want, you know, and sometimes it's just really distracting. And so if Michigan were to go out there and just lay an egg, my guess it would be because of all that, right? Blake Corum's getting asked questions on the Tuesday of game week about, hey, how come your name's on an LLC with Connor Stallions? It's just, it's just kind of outrageous, some of the stuff that they're having to deal with right now. That, to me, would have a bigger effect on the outcome than whether Harbaugh is the one calling the timeouts or not. I look, I, th- I was at a game similar to this. Ohio State came in here. It wasn't a whiteout game, but it was a noon game. It was an awesome atmosphere. The, the Penn State crowd did, a, did an amazing job. It's probably the most charged noon game atmosphere I've seen since I've been doing this. Uh, having said all that, I think if there was one team built to be like, okay, it's Michigan against the world. Just remember how Ryan Day said it was Ohio against the world? Um, yeah. I feel like this team is so experienced and has so many guys who came back. I think they would fr- respond pretty well. I, I don't think, and I'm not saying Jim Harbaugh doesn't matter on game day, but I don't think it would. I don't think it'll be a difference. I'm picking them to win, you know, 28 20. And I don't think it would be a big difference one way or the other. In some ways, they may play better if, if he's not there. Not because he's not a, you know, doesn't have value, but I just think you, you would probably get a, again, I hate to say the teams all of a sudden like they're going to play even more inspired because of something, but. I, I do think they're they're equipped to handle it. J.J. McCarthy plays well on the road. He always has, especially the last two years. And he's playing in a lot of tough environments. They have a run game. The run game travels. Um, so I do think, you know, I think Penn State will give them a good game. I think we'll see a better Penn State than what we saw in Columbus. I mean, it's home and it's not really Drew Aller's first big, big, big road environment. It's different now. But I still think Michigan is the better team and they're the more experienced team. And one of the biggest factors for me is just that James Franklin hasn't shown he can win games of this magnitude. He beat Ohio State once seven years ago. But anytime there's like, it feels like anytime there's a spot like this where he's playing a top five or top 10 type team, he's three and 16 against top 10 teams. You know, I'm just, as I say that, it's occurring to me that the biggest impact, I think, if Harbaugh weren't there and Michigan still won, is that poor James Franklin, people will be like, you couldn't even win one of these games without the head coach there on the other sideline. Uh but we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Give me another game. That's the big game. But what's another one that you're most interested in? That I'm I, like, I'm curious in a few games. I'm curious in Ole Miss at Georgia. Georgia's a 10 and a half point favorite. Like, you know, I think Ole Miss is a pretty good team. Obviously, they're a top 10 team. I'm not buying that they can go into Georgia because Lane's teams have have not have not responded well when they have tough games against ranked opponents on the road. You know, just you know, they lose by two touchdowns. I feel like there's not going to be me sneaking up on them for Georgia. You know, and I don't know. I, I mean, do you think Ole Miss can pull the upset? No, I think Georgia will win this game more comfortably than they did against Missouri. I think Jackson Dart. I looked up his. You know, he's had some great games, but they've all been at home. His performances on the road, even games that they've won, have not been good. Um, and I don't think that bodes well against Georgia's defense. Um, the other thing, I, the other one I would point out, though, in that, in the, I mean, there's actually a lot of interesting games in the SEC this week at Tennessee and Missouri. Um, Alabama going to Kentucky, 10 and a half point favorites. They've been on a roll, obviously. They've gotten a lot better. But I almost feel like now people are overcorrecting. <laughs> Too far to once. First, we were way too down on them. And now maybe people have 
jumped a little bit too far ahead because now people are talking about, are they going to, you know, they should be ahead of Oregon and they should be, you know, what happens if they beat Georgia? And it's like, well, hold on now, guys. Like, we're only a couple of weeks removed from, uh, you know, can they finish off a pretty mediocre A&M team or Arkansas? Um, and Kentucky, I don't think is great by any means. Devin Leary has been a little bit disappointing. Um, but it's on the road after, you know, a big win against LSU last week. That's a, that's a, like a trap game kind of potential. Anything? Could be. Um, I, you know, look, I, I feel like they kind of have things on track. Um, I don't know. I could see a little bit of a hiccup, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think they're falling back to what they look like against, against, uh, no, I, I, uh, they're a better team than they are. They were then, and, you know, saving for the most part is pretty good about avoiding those letdown type performances, but I could see them coming out a little bit flat. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What do we say we get to the mailbag? All right, Stu, on to the mailbag. As always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. We got a couple questions about the CFP. I'm going to start with Ted Sebastianelli. Stu and Bruce, love your show. Thank you, Ted. What happens when Penn State beats Michigan, Michigan beats Ohio State, and Penn State wins the tiebreaker for the Big Ten East and plays for and wins the Big Ten title? Who makes the CFP? It may be that none of them make it, right? I mean, this this has come up... Um... You know, Scott Dockermeyer doing the bowl projections and we didn't have Penn State in our New Year six. And somebody was like, but they'd be 10 and two. And I'd be like, but who would who would there who would the 10 be against? Right. Iowa snuck into the rankings last night. So would Penn State with one loss, uh, big win, obviously, over Michigan in this scenario, um, have a better resume than 12 and one Washington or Oregon or Texas? I don't I don't know. Yeah, obviously the win over Michigan would carry a lot of weight, but I don't know. It's hard to say on that point because I think we need to see it for it to happen. Right and now. to be clear, the champion, like if he's saying, well, Penn State would get in on a technicality, would but would they just take Ohio State or Michigan instead? No, I think if they all have the same record and Penn State's the conference champion, Penn State would get precedent. What doesn't help um, Penn State in this case is that because they're still in the division format, you're getting somebody from a really weak Big Ten, Big Ten West who would be involved. And I think now it doesn't. It's not going to relative relative to Texas because their their next best team after Texas um, is not going to be as impressive as say what you probably have of a, it's a rematch between Washington and Oregon, and if Oregon wins that, yeah. So I don't. I think that 
that hurts the Big Ten in this case. Well, and what if that team is Iowa, who Penn State already played and defeated thoroughly? Um, I don't know. I really do think this season is going to be one where some 12-1 and Power 5 champ is going to be left out and everybody's going to be furious. Speaking of which, we got a question from Dan English in Houston. Hey, Stuart and Bruce, I know there's a lot that can still happen, but let's assume after the final week of the season, three playoff spots are presumably taken with the SEC champ, we'll say it's Georgia, Big Ten champ, and undefeated Florida State. Then you have one loss, Pac-12 champ in Oregon, and one loss, Big 12 champ in Texas. How do you think the debate between those two for the final playoff spot, final playoff spot would play out? As you guys have mentioned, Oregon's been extremely impressive since the Washington loss. Texas hasn't been as impressive since the OU loss, but still has been winning with a backup QB and still has the Alabama win to point to. This actually came up on the show Tuesday night. Um, I, I hadn't given any thought to the order of like seven, eight, nine, but Greg McElroy brought it up and it was like, what's Oregon's resume to this point? Like, why are they two spots, of, you know, one spot above Texas and two spots above, um, above Alabama? And I hadn't really thought about that. And I think to this point, you could say those teams have a better resume than Oregon. But by the time Oregon gets through in this scenario, you have them uh, beating USC this week, beating a ranked Oregon State team, and then beating possibly Washington again in the championship game. And they also hammered Utah at Utah. Yeah, that was a big one. Yeah. So, And then they would have a win over a good Oregon State team, which... You know, look at this point, Oregon State's seven and two. You know, we think or you know, if Oregon State's a nine and three team, they would be in the top 25. Um, avenging the one loss, which was really a close loss in Seattle. I think that would carry some weight. I don't think anybody out there thinks the Big 12 is anywhere near as good as the Pac 12 is this year. I think the more intriguing scenario, and I think that one is fairly simple. So I let's let me ask you this. Texas. Yeah. So I missed this, but apparently. You and Greg McElroy had quite the dust up on social media. I did not intend for there to be a dust up. I'm sorry. If Greg, if you're listening, I'm sorry. You're not an Alabama Homer. You just uh made up you just got very passionate on the show about a topic I wasn't quite expecting. But yes, what is your question, Bruce? So fill fill me in on I didn't watch the show. Um I was not around. Well, what he was talking about was kind of what we just talked about: the positioning of Alabama, Texas, and Oregon, which really only comes into play. If Alabama runs the table and beats Georgia in the SEC championship. So he's saying he was saying like Alabama fans are starting to freak out because like they've never been in this position where they don't control their own destiny. The scenario that he talked about on the air um, really would only come into play if Alabama runs the table, beats Georgia in the SEC championship game and is up uh, up against Oregon for the fourth spot. Right, because we know Texas is going to get in above Alabama. And wait, so, wait, wait, wait! You really you're convinced that Texas coming out of the Big Twelve would, would, by the way, with a loss now that they probably won't get to avenge against an Oklahoma team that may or may not be in the top twenty five. That an SEC champ, one loss champ, that would beat Georgia, which would be the best one of the season. That you you're convinced that absolutely from week two. Texas would get ahead of Alabama. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, Bruce, but they actually these two teams actually I know played each did. other on, on a football field. And it wasn't, you know, last second field goal. Texas ended up pulling it's a, it's away. It's a really good win. It ain't beaten yeah. Georgia. And, and also, let's look at the resumes here. 
So Alabama would ha- already has a two-touchdown win over Ole Miss, which is right now ranked number nine by the committee. Two-touchdown win over Tennessee, which is ranked number 13. And two-touchdown win over LSU, which is also ranked in the top 20. Here's Texas's resume. They whipped Kansas, who's number 16. They lost to Oklahoma, who's number 17. They beat number 25, K-State, by three. And then they would play an Oklahoma State team, which is now 15. But if they beat them, I'm guessing Oklahoma State will not be anywhere near 15. So are you suggesting, look, by, I, look, Alabama ending Georgia's like gazillion year. With, but I, I'm trying to, I don't understand. Are you saying that they would say, and again, everything has to fall into place. Like, I think people will lose, right? There's no way this would actually end up being the scenario. But for we'll play it out for fun. Are you saying the committee would go, hey, I know these two teams played on the field. But they're just so there's the discrepancy in the resumes is just so vast that we don't need to apply that here. I think they would, because we've never seen an SEC champ left out. Yeah, I think it would take a and this would it would here, here's the thing. I actually went on a fine bomb show and talked about this. And I said, if if it's just bad luck, like if Alabama had played Texas Tech and lost and then came back and ran the table. This wouldn't even be a discussion. It just so happens that they happen to schedule a team that in this scenario would be the one team that they're contending with a playoff spot for. You it think would there's be zero like, chance that the committee would take? I mean, I think what you're overlooking. I'm not saying zero percent. No, is the fact but I think that if you beat Georgia, like people will look at you differently. They will say, and I'm not saying, look, if I was a Texas fan, I would be pissed to hear this conversation in this direction. But the truth is that game happened in week two. Jalen Miller. And Alabama got a lot better. Yes. And also what I don't think helps Texas is the perception of the rest of the big 12. No, it doesn't. They're leaving it. Like what's the, what? But you know, it wasn't. That's when you got. But the big 12. You talk about teams getting better. Oklahoma State got a lot better. And so if they end up playing them and beating them in the Big 12. Oklahoma State got a lot better because they were horrible at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Like they were not. I mean, they were horrible at the beginning of the year. I'm not ruling out the possibility by any means, but we've always been told if it's close, if there's a tiebreaker, head to head comes into play. There have been exceptions. I remember um, two seasons ago, Michigan State beat Michigan. And then like a week later, Michigan passed. Back up. Which side of that were you on? I think it's different because that was very controversial. They're both in the same conference, though. I mean, you're just you just propped up Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State lost by 26 points to to South Alabama. The the other thing that's different is that was, I believe, in East Lansing. I mean, this is Texas going on the road to Tuscaloosa and beating them. You're just going to toss that in the trash. I'm not saying toss it in the trash. It's a great win. You know what else would be a great win? Beating Georgia in the Georgia Dome. Yeah, and there's no, uh, it's called the Mercedes-Benz, whatever. There would be people who say, how can you leave that out? They beat the two-time champs. You can't possibly leave them out. And then there would be people who say, you can't you can't ignore a decisive head-to-head result and leave out the team that won the game. I would there would be no be good resolution there. there. I would normally be one of those people. The problem is Texas's resume, I think, with everything else is is it's unfortunate because the big 12 is really, really weak right now. And 
you know, when your next best team is Oklahoma State that lost by a ton in Stillwater to South Alabama. And yes. Wait, Oklahoma wait, State wait. Is- you're going to throw out the week two Alabama-Texas result because Alabama got better, but you're not going to throw out the South Alabama result, which was like before they settled on one quarterback and before they found like one of the best running backs in the country was sitting on their bench. No, I'm not <clears> going <throat> to entirely throw it out. I'm just saying you beat Oklahoma State, who at best – at best would be then what a 10 and three team Oklahoma state probably will not be in the top 15 in the, in the CFP rankings. And I'm not sure if they'll have anything else in the top 20, right? It's just because K state and Kansas are going to play each other. So one of them is not going to be ranked, you know, Oklahoma, maybe they'll still be ranked, but right now they're hanging by a thread it feels like. I mean, they're 17. It's not like they're maybe they'll win the last three games and they'll they'll spring back up in the top 10. We'll revisit this if it actually comes to pass. Remember, for this to be an actual playoff scenario, it would mean that the Big Ten champ went undefeated. The uh, Pac-12 champ, let's say it's Washington, went undefeated uh, and Florida State goes undefeated. Right. Otherwise, I would say there would be room for both. But um We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Here's a question right up your alley from David Eisen. Thanks always for the great work, gentlemen. Coaching guru Bruce, please let us know who will be on the short list of legitimate candidates for the USC DC position. It's unfortunate that the Caleb years were wasted with a bad defense. So who can coach Riley hire on that side of the ball to make the defense respectable? So I wrote about this on the athletic Monday. Um, uh, the biggest option for them would be Jimmy Leonard, who obviously did a terrific job at Wisconsin, a, would he want to move to Southern California? I don't know. B, would he want to work with Lincoln Riley? It's much different to be a DC um, when you're playing, you know, ground and pound football in Madison, Wisconsin, than it is to be the air raid guy. Um, across town, Danton Lynn's done a really good job in one year at UCLA. I'm not sure he would leave. And I don't know if they would, if that's enough sample size for Lincoln Riley to go, okay, this is who I'd bet on. Um, Tony White, another guy with UCLA roots at Nebraska did really well, pretty much everywhere he's been has done a really good job at Nebraska in one year. The guy, I think there's two guys I think would keep an eye on. One is Tony Gibson, who's at NC state consistently has done well there on defense. He's also worked for an array guy and did really well when Dana Holgerson was his boss. Um, the other wild card in this is... Zach Arnett. Now he's the head coach at Mississippi State. He was Mike Leach's defense coordinator for three seasons. A lot of what I heard is that right now he's on some shaky footing. The AD who hired him is not the AD at Mississippi State. He's four and five. I mean, there's an uphill climb to get bowl eligible. Um, they could, the new Mississippi State AD, Zach Selman, could be in the market to hire his own guy. Obviously, as you know, Arnett spent a bunch of time at San Diego State. He has, again, you know, like because he worked for Leach doesn't mean he knows exactly what it's going to be like working for Lincoln Riley. Um, but that's one I would say just keep an eye on potentially. That would actually be a really good fit. I mean, he actually, we've talking here in the past about is it bo- even possible to have a really good defense when you're at an air raid program? They actually did that. Uh, Mississippi State, you know, his Leach offenses at Mississippi State weren't necessarily lighting up the scoreboard, but the defense was really good. So, um course now you've just thrown out the possibility of an sec head coach getting fired after one year but I'm not saying that I, I i could i could actually see that for all the reasons you said 
Why don't you finish by asking me the Michael guy? Well, I was going to ask you, who would you who who would be a name you think? Okay, that guy would be take out. Well, you know, the only other name that that you didn't mention that I thought of was Jimmy Lake. What's he doing? Uh, he's out here with the Rams. The thing I wondered about, and I don't know where this is. He's a really good defensive coordinator, and he's recruited well on the West Coast. And he's great with DBs. What I didn't know was who was Jimmy Lake's last boss. Oh yeah. Why did I even bring that up? Whoops. So yeah. For those of that are following that, Jen Cohen, who fired him at Washington, is now the AD at USC. That's scratch yeah. that one. No, maybe, right. maybe Jen Cohen would be would be open to Lincoln Riley hiring him. I just you know, no, no. I mean, you remember how that ended? I do remember. There's how no that. way, no way, no way. Sorry, I even brought it up. This question is from Michael Galvin. So I wrote you guys last month about Marcus Freeman. Still high on him, Stu. His record against Power Five opponents is seven and six. His offensive coordinator hire has been an absolute disaster. They will finish with zero wins against top twenty-five teams unless UCL USC pulls out a miracle. Any chance for a power for a New Year's Six Bowl is gone. At the start of the season, ND had three games circled on the calendar. He blows the Ohio State game, 10 men on the field twice, and puts out an absolutely embarrassing offensive effort against a Clemson team in the middle of a free fall. Throwing an ass kicking at Louisville, and this season is a disaster. Okay. Holy moly. How do you feel now? Disaster. They're still ranked in the top 20, I think, in the rankings. Yeah, obviously, they, he lost two of the most important games. And I think this one was the most... Um, I know that, you know, obviously, the, the Louisville game wasn't you know, it was a little bit embarrassing at the time. I think if you look back at kind of the, the gauntlet they were in at the time, it actually makes a little bit of sense. But man, Clemson is not good this year. And you go there and you just lay a total egg. Um, and like he said, blow your chance into your six bowl. So to answer his question, am I as high on him as I was a month ago? No. Am I ready to like kick him to the curb? Absolutely not. Um, I think the OC hire is a, is a legitimate point. And it's still a little unclear on how that all went down. But, you know, he thought he was about to hire a really good one in, in Andy Ludwig. And then whether you believe that uh, the negotiations fell apart or he got overruled or whatever happened, he ends up not being able to hire him or Andy Ludwig turned him down. That's what I mean by who whose decision was it. Um, and you end up with, you know, just in promoting a guy in your staff. You know, I think there might have been some unrealistic expectations of Sam Hartman. You know, I tried to say that on the podcast over the summer. You know, a guy's thrown for a lot of yards, great season at Wake Forest. He's also thrown a lot of interceptions, and that's kind of what happened at Clemson. Um, but it does feel like a missed opportunity because Notre Dame, interceptions or not, Notre Dame had not had a quarterback that accomplished in a long, long time. So uh, what I'm basically saying is, you know, disappointing season. I thought I thought they'd win 10 games. Um, I didn't think they'd go to the playoff. But certainly New Year's Six Bowl was a realistic expectation. That didn't happen. So now you go into year three and, you know, he's starting to feel the pressure a little bit. But the way Michael's talking about him tells me he thinks he should just go ahead and fire him now. Um, just one thing, like and they have a win against NC State who they who they hammered in Raleigh. That NC State team could end up in the top 25 before it's over. But Notre Dame fans don't care about beating NC No, State. I get it. They don't. I'm just saying, like, you know. The USC win was a very was an impressive win. I don't think you just throw that out. That's a rivalry game. Yeah, they, they made Caleb. They, that was Caleb's worst game. I do think that you know you can't. 
entirely just dismiss and say, okay, the only games, the big games he had were games he lost. They've, so. they've been all over the map. And frankly, that's a little bit alarming. Like, why are they so inconsistent from one week to why do they get up for certain games and then lay an egg in others? You know, going back to last year when they lost inexplicably to both to Marshall and then, you know, to a bad Stanford team. So, yeah, um, I, think, yeah. I think the question here on this, too. Um, you know how many times, so Brian Kelly had a good run at Notre Dame in a place people don't stay at too long. He was there a dozen years. I mean, he only lost less than three games. Um, it didn't happen that often. So I think, you know, look, it's year two. I wouldn't freak out at this point. Now, look, if they fall, fall down the stretch and lose a couple more times, that's different. But I think if they go nine and three and go to a bowl game, I get it. It's a disappointing season. I don't think it's a disastrous season either. To your point, Bruce, um, Brian Kelly's first two seasons at Notre Dame. Now, granted, he was taking over for Charlie Weiss, not for himself. Eight and five and eight and five. But I think expectations were higher because Marcus Freeman took over a Notre Dame program that in the four years before he took over went 12 and one, 11 and two, 10 and two, and 11 and one. The last thing I would say is what was the single thing that made people, that made Notre Dame fans most excited about Marcus Freeman? How he's recruiting. Recruiting. He has not had the, the the fruits of that have not had a chance to really show up yet. They had some, you know, some of some of the some of their best players this year are freshmen from that from last year's class, but most of them haven't even played yet. So Brian Brian see, Kelly's first five years plays out. Brian Kelly's first five years. Now, one of them was a 12 and one season where they got blown out by Alabama in the title game. But everything else there, the next best season was nine and four. It was I think they were just five. so scarred at that point from Bob Davey, uh, Tyrone Willingham, and Charlie Weiss that it was that those were I mean, people weren't happy about it, but it wasn't disastrous. But now that Brian Kelly got them to that, you know, two playoff teams in in three years, and um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five straight top twelve seasons, then yeah, going nine and three this year and going to the Pop Tarts Bowl or whatever it's going to be is a letdown but so um expectations will be pretty high for next year all right as always you can send your questions the audible pod at gmail.com and we will see you next time <laughs>